I'm Elliot Kraft, and this is The Cafeteria. Twice a month, we bring you the only English training podcast for Francophone professionals, exclusively for members of Kraft Anglais. Today, we examine the role played by technical terminology in Perfectionnement de l'Anglais. Spoiler alert, it's not a big one. And we take a look at some of the English words most frequently mispronounced by Francophones. As always, we conclude with questions from you, the Kraft Anglais community. So grab your gingerbread latte and let's get started. It's December again. The season when everything starts to slow down a bit and turn inward as we prepare to say goodbye to another year. People are cheerful, marginally kinder to one another, and city streets are festive with a warm glow that even a new coronavirus variant can't extinguish. And while the Nordman stands proudly in the corner of the living room and the garland on the balcony dazzles my elderly neighbors, I'm aware we've still got a couple weeks to go before we can turn off the notifications, walk away from the screens, and spend a well-deserved moment with the ones we love. The previous episode of The Cafeteria found us in the Craft Anglais Learning Tips space, a natural choice for the podcast pilot. Since I thought we could all use a little linguistic boost to help us get through these last days before the break, today's lesson is one for the platform's motivation space. Let's get to it. Act 1, Mini Lesson. I'm curious by nature, and one of the pleasures of language coaching is that I get to exchange with professionals who work in highly specialized areas. Over the years, I've learned more than I ever thought I would about cryptocurrency, shareholder voting rights, and multidrug-resistant bacteria. For several years, I worked with an asset manager who would present companies from his portfolio during our lessons. Each profile was so unique, so bizarrely specific, that the client's presentations became for me like eagerly awaited episodes in a series. There was the episode about the Belgian weaving machine manufacturer, still dominating the market with the same model it had been producing for a century. Then there was the one about the exoskeletons that augment human performance in the clinic and on the battlefield. And let's not forget the episode about the corporation whose entire M.O., was the acquisition of companies that produce RVs and camper vans. Hey, what did you guys do with the marshmallows? Clients sometimes feel they need to apologize for going too deeply into the technical details of their work because they imagine they must be boring me. Oh no, my friends, they're not. I savor the obscure minutiae of their professional lives like a pastrami on rye at Katz's Delicatessen. I guess I'm just weird that way. Despite the highly technical nature of the work my clients do, it's rare that I receive a technically specific demand. But from time to time, I'm contacted by a prospective student in search of what sounds like an almost branded occupational language training. More often than not, the requested formation is legal or business English. A first call with this kind of prospect typically unfolds something like this. Hi. A colleague told me you're doing legal English. Is that true? Well, I do work with a lot of lawyers. But what do you mean when you say legal English? You know, term and condition, merger and acquisition. 
Okay, sure. Well, topics like those certainly do come up with my clients, depending on their area of specialization. What kind of law do you practice? I'm specialized in corporate litigation. Okay, great. So when you use English at work, what are the main contexts? You're using? If you detect a certain reluctance on my part to recognize and validate legal English as a thing here, you're not mistaken. Neither is the prospect. Here's what the prospect might be thinking during this first part of our exchange. Well, I do work this guy seems lawyers, nice enough, but, but what do you mean it doesn't sound like he really knows what legal English is. And here's what I'm thinking. Hi, a colleague told me you're doing legal English. Is that true? Well, I present continuous versus rules. simple present. But what do you mean when you say legal English? You know, term and condition, merger and acquisition. Okay. As complex. Well, topics like those certainly do come up with my clients, depending on their area of specialization. What kind of law do you practice? I'm specialized in corporate litigation. Okay, Être d'accord. Être spécialisé. English at work, what are the main contexts you're using? While the prospect is focused on legal English, I'm focused on the English that's coming out of his mouth spontaneously during our call. And already, just in these first moments of the exchange, I've identified three classic errors, none of which has the slightest thing to do with law or legal discourse. Let's take a closer look. Alex, could we go back to the first part of the exchange? I'm specialized in... Hi. Yes, right there. Could we have just that first line, please? A colleague told me you're doing legal English. Is that true? Perfect. Now, if you've been around Kraft Anglais for a while, you may recognize the first mistake in the prospect's speech from a lesson called Simple Present versus Present Continuous. The source of the issue here has to do with versatile French verb tenses, specifically the simple present. In French, the simple present is used in expressions like j'habite à Paris depuis 2019 and je te tiens au courant. In English, however, one says neither I live in Paris since 2019 nor I keep you posted. In the first case, the appropriate verb tense is the present perfect. I have lived in Paris since 2019 and with the contraction, preferable in spoken English, I've lived in Paris since 2019. In the second case, we need the future tense. I will keep you posted. Again, with the preferred contraction, I'll keep you posted. With a colleague told me you're doing legal English. The prospect is using what we call the present continuous, the famous ENG form, whose most common use is to describe an action that's ongoing in the present, happening right now. Je fais la vaisselle. I'm doing the dishes. However, what's being referred to here in the context is a permanent characteristic and not something ongoing or exceptional. As a matter of fact, I work with attorneys. That's a fundamental part of what I do. In such cases, the appropriate verb tense is the simple present. So rather than A colleague told me you're doing legal English. We want A colleague told me you do legal English. Alex, could we jump to the prospect's next line? I'm specializing. You know, term and condition, merger and acquisition. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. These are technical terms. And you're right. But our prospect's mistake here actually has nothing to do with the technicality of these words. Here we're looking at the single most common error made by Francophone speakers of English, what I sometimes refer to as the S-complex. 
In French, as a general rule, we don't pronounce the S's at the ends of words. J'ai un stylo, j'ai deux stylo. In the second case, the S is there, but you'd never know it because it's not pronounced. In English, however, it's critical to make the distinction. I have one pen, I have two pens. When we refer to terms and conditions and mergers and acquisitions, as a rule, we're speaking generally. It's not that we have in mind just one term or one acquisition. We're referring to these types of provisions and transactions in their various manifestations. So, rather than, you know, term and condition, merger and acquisition, we want, you know, terms and conditions, mergers and acquisitions. Alex, could we have that last line? I'm specialized. What do you mean when you say, I'm specialized in corporate litigation? Perfect. Now, here's another one some of you will recognize from the Craft Anglais platform. More specifically, from a lesson entitled Agree to Disagree which is all about the verb to agree and how its sense changes with the prepositions with, on, and to. While introducing this lesson, I note an important first-order difference between the French and English when it comes to to agree. The French uses auxiliary verb être while no auxiliary verb is used in English. So, je suis d'accord, I agree. It just so happens that to agree isn't alone here. This same problematic also applies when it comes to the verb to specialize. In French, je suis spécialisé dans. In English, I specialize in. To specialize is its own unique verb and doesn't need and doesn't want an auxiliary verb. Let's bring the exercise full circle and listen to the exchange again, this time with the fixes I've just presented. Hi, a colleague told me you do legal English. Is that true? Well, I do work with a lot of lawyers, but what do you mean when you say legal English? You know, terms and conditions, mergers and acquisitions. Okay, sure. Well, topics like those certainly come up with my clients, depending on their area of specialization. What kind of law do you practice? I specialize in corporate litigation. Okay, great. So, when you use English at work, what are the main contexts? This is, of course, a synthetic demonstration, but it's pretty accurate. What I mean is that I can't remember a consultation call, and I've had hundreds of them, that showed a francophone struggling in English with the technical terminology of his or her occupation. What these calls all show is francophones confronting the same universal challenges in English with varying degrees of difficulty, irrespective of their professions. Now, it's perfectly natural to want one's language training to be customized to the environment in which one works, especially if that's the place one isn't feeling at ease in the target language. This is even more true if one is told to work on one's language skills by a partner or a manager during an annual review, for example. So should one find oneself in such a situation, and should one hear about something called legal English, naturally one is going to think, that one has found one solution. But here's what I want to know. How did our prospect hear about legal English in the first place? I mean, who told the prospect about legal English? In order to answer this question, my friends, we need to take an excursion into the bowels of the language learning publication marketing apparatus. Come, take my hand. Don't be afraid. I won't let you fall. What 
read, Malone. Words, words, words. What is the matter, Malone? Between who? No, I mean the matter that you read, Malone. Ah, slanders, sir. Let's face it. We live in the age of Deeple and Google Translate. The age of the shortcut and the quick fix. And at some point in the twisted history of publication and language instruction, the very real needs of language learners like our prospect were, well, heard. But not by the forces of light. From somewhere in a deep, dark place, the response came. Like Saruman crossbreeding humans and orcs to spawn the Urukai, the fictions of occupational English and the quick, fast food fix were merged. The result? L'anglais de la banque, les cent mots les plus utilisés. Mille mots en anglais pour l'infirmier. Les trois mille cinq cents mots du doigt. Toutes les clés pour réussir. The business model is simple. Take a thousand technical words in English for a specific profession and translate them into French. Then translate them into Spanish, into German, into Esperanto. Now rinse and repeat for any profession you can imagine. 5,000 words for food stylists. 4,000 words for stunt doubles. 300 words for rodeo clowns. If the competition heats up, just increase the number of words so that it's 500 more than your competitor. And don't forget to add totalizing catchphrases to your title, like comprehensive, exhaustive, and everything you need. I'm a huge fan of lists. Until quite recently, my life was organized in notebooks. It was serious. I had a small one to keep track of daily tasks and a bigger one for monthly and annual goals. With the creation of Craft Anglais, I transitioned from old-school notebooks to something called project management software, which I can only describe as lists on steroids. While lists are incredibly helpful for staying organized and for things like grocery shopping or packing for vacation, they're not useful for everything. Indeed, in some cases, they can be counterproductive. I can't think of a better example of such a case than advanced level language study, where the goal is confident and autonomous access to the language we need when we need it, here and now in the present. In my private coaching, there's an explicit procedural agreement between me and the student that on-the-spot translations will neither be requested nor forthcoming. Clients are encouraged to do their best with whatever language is immediately accessible, and any missing vocabulary is addressed at the end of the session. The idea is to encourage autonomy and avoid dependence. I won't be there with my clients when they're using English outside of the lesson. Neither will lists of words. And this is where the cynicism of glossaries and word lists comes into play. While such products are marketed as supporting the language learning process, the very purpose of a list is to absolve one of the responsibility for retaining information. It's the list that remembers for us, and this is precisely why absent-minded people like me love them. But the cynicism gets worse. Because at the same time that they surreptitiously preclude authentic opportunities for mastery of the target language, these products provide an illusion of abundant scholarship. 5,000, 10,000, every single word you will ever need, ever. A first irony here is that most people who purchase or who have purchased such books don't end up using them. 
Am I the only one here whose bookshelf contains several language learning books that were consulted once and then forgotten about? Am I the only one here who enthusiastically subscribes to word-of-the-day newsletters, then systematically deletes the daily emails without reading them? And even when we do use, if that's the right word, these lists and words of the day, what's the value of even the fanciest word or phrase in abstraction, taken out of context? Good evening, ladies. What can I get you? Non-disclosure agreement. Terms and conditions. Patent infringement. Acquisition. Triple bypass. Multidrug-resistant bacteria. Force majeure. But what is perhaps the greatest irony of all, and to return to our prospect, is that the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the urgent need for technical foreign language terminology among professionals, francophone or otherwise, doesn't exist. Maybe I've been living in another France, in an alternate universe, but the English challenges faced by the clients I work with and have worked with over the last decade simply have little or nothing to do with technical language. What my clients struggle with are those structural differences between the French and English languages that set up various pièges when it comes to moving from one language to the next. If I'm on a mission to make the fundamentals of English grammar sexy, it's because I'm convinced that working towards mastery of the rules that govern how sensible phrases are constructed will deliver a real return on investment in your language learning journey. After all, the ability to confidently and accurately use a limited number of words in a multitude of contexts is exponentially more valuable than having a million technical terms in your head but not being able to produce a sensible phrase with them. Now, am I saying that lists are bad? Absolutely not. A dictionary is a list. Reference materials are great. And if it makes you feel better to keep those other books and words of the day around, by all means, do it. But let's not mistake the cynicism of clever publishers and unscrupulous formateurs for the painstaking but deeply rewarding work of Perfectionnement de l'Anglais. When we dig a little bit and interrogate our own reflexes, we discover that there is no business English, medical English, or English for rodeo clowns. There's just English. One word, big or small, after the other. Act two, pronunciation break. In today's pronunciation break, I'm going to present three statistically prominent pronunciation challenges for Francophone speakers of English, along with some exercises. If you can't close your office door or it's not possible to practice out loud right now, just go ahead and do the exercises in your head. But please do try later using your voice. Remember that while there are indeed problematics, pronunciation is much more about training your body, your mouth, your lips, your breathing, than it is about any concept. You'll find all today's exercise phrases with the lesson in the motivation space of the Craft Anglais platform. In our last pronunciation break, we talked about the TH sound, so I thought I'd start with a related pronunciation point today, which also happens to be in the top five challenges I encounter with clients. The difficulty has to do with the distinction between the singular month and the plural months, the first ending in a TH and the second plural form ending in a THS. The first thing to note here is that the plural form is not months's, 
which is a typical reflex for Francophone speakers. The second thing is that while one should pronounce the TH in the singular form, month, which means putting your tongue between your teeth, there's a shortcut when it comes to the plural form. Instead of saying months, simply say months, M-U-N-S. So for the singular, month, and for the plural, months. It's worth noting here that this shortcut is actually standard pronunciation. American English is nothing if not economical, and in everyday usage, it's quite rare to hear somebody go to the trouble of saying months, which is basically a three-step pronunciation affair packed into a one-syllable word. Everybody just says months, and you should too, and certainly never months. And because it's the season of giving, allow me to add the following. The same principle applies for the plural form of a piece of clothing, clothes, des vêtements. Here, too, you can and should take the shortcut and pronounce the word close, as in, please close the window, I'm getting cold. Let's do a quick exercise, first with the singular and then with the plural. Please repeat after me. Last month, I bought a piece of clothing. Great. Now for the plural. In the winter months, I wear warm clothes. Great. Now let's stay with TH for a moment. This next word will perhaps seem a little obscure, but it is one that I hear a lot, probably because I work with a fair number of business people, as well as doctors and scientific researchers who deal regularly with statistics. The word is threshold, and I can never get the French right, In the spirit of solidarity, let me give it a shot. Please hop over to the community and tell me how I did. Here it goes. Soy. Soy. Did I? Okay, never mind. We're here to talk about threshold. So what's tricky with threshold from the point of view of French is that the whole thing begins with a challenging and unavoidable TH. Threshold. What's also tricky is that you have this sh sound in the same word. So you have these two sort of similar sounds, th, sh, th, sh, th, sh, th, sh. A final piece, and I always have to think twice about this myself, is that there's only one H in the spelling of threshold, while in fact, the way I pronounce it anyway, sounds almost as if there are two. Threshold. As I hear myself say it today, I confirm, there are indeed two H's. Spontaneously, it seems like the first is required to make the sh sound, but that a second one is needed for the suffix hold, threshold. Let's try an exercise with threshold that builds on the previous one. Please repeat after me. In the winter months, I wear warm clothes as the temperature threshold falls. In the winter months, I wear warm clothes as the temperature threshold falls. Great. To conclude today's pronunciation break, let's look at another big one. As with months, we're in the top five here. The word is idea. The issue here has to do with the fact that the French idée is a two-syllable word while the English idea has three syllables, 
and there are no shortcuts here. What's interesting and completely logical is that French speakers of English tend to say ID when translating idée, but ID is already taken. It's an acronym for identification, and it translates the French pièce d'identité. So, idea, idée, ID, pièce d'identité. Let's try a final exercise that brings all of this episode's pronunciation points together. I have an idea for the holidays, a threshold I'd like to meet. These months are cold. I'm feeling old. Please give me some clothes for my feet. Let's break that down. We'll take it one phrase at a time. I have an idea for the holidays. A threshold I'd like to meet. These months are cold. I'm feeling old. Please give me some clothes for my feet. Are there pronunciation points that you find challenging? Hop over to the pronunciation space of the Craft Anglais community, tell us all about it, and you may hear your pronunciation bête noire in a future episode of The Cafeteria. And now it's time to hear from you in office hours. Act 3, Office Hours. Today, as always, we devote the final act of the cafeteria to questions from the Craft Anglais community. We begin with Stefan, who asks, I was working on the lesson on important as the single most important faux ami, and I wondered why, in the quiz, it's incorrect to say important measures must be taken. Great question, Stefan. In fact, it's not incorrect to use important and measures in the same sentence, as long as we're clearly referring to measures in a qualitative sense and not a quantitative one. So, for example, these measures were very important for the people because they allowed them to recover their land rights. Here, we're clearly in the world of the qualitative, even the subjective. Now, with a phrase like, blank measures must be taken, The context more clearly supports the quantitative side of the French important, which, as you know, gives rise to a faux ami with the English important. What's suggested here is reference to the extent of the measures, to the measure of the measure, if you will, and less so to their relative qualitative importance. That's why the correct answer to this question is significant measures must be taken. Okay. Leah asks, In the lesson, there's English and there's English. You say it's important that when we're doing business, we should just focus on doing business and not on English. But I learn a lot from mistakes I hear other people make, especially at work. Isn't there some value to that? Thanks for this great question, Leah. Yes, the division between English for study and English for work, though I think it's a critical one, is also a porous one. What I mean is that it's not entirely black and white. If you personally are directly engaged in doing business or having fun in English, I think it's important to keep the focus on that. Focusing on your English in such situations could alienate you from what's going on in the present, including your interlocutors. And in some situations, like an important business deal or personal event, that could do some damage. Having said this, if you're attending a meeting, especially one with lots of participants, and you're not required to be on, as we say, meaning 
you know, to perform, to speak, or engage. If you're more or less in an observational posture, well, sure, in such settings, especially if there aren't more important things to follow, it can't hurt to make some observations about other people's English. The last thing I'll say about this, and as a kind of orientation toward our work on English or any other language, it's easy to point out other people's mistakes. And though that can be constructive, it can also get ugly. Everyone's in his or her own place with English or whatever language they're working on. And I think it's important to keep that in mind and to keep the focus on our own work. As I mentioned during our last Office Hours session, I'm taking one question each episode that relates to the Craft Anglais platform itself, to its conception and design, and the bigger ideas behind the Craft Anglais project. Today's question comes from Noemi, who asks, I wanted to know about the quiz concept. How did you choose the different question types? Thanks for that question, Noemi. When designing the quiz question types, I was working with the idea that different gestures should be engaged by the user. Typing in a translation, for example, a simple click on a multiple-choice question, or a drag-and-drop action. What I had in mind, in an albeit unscientific way, was that approaching a single problematic using multiple gestures could make the problematic more clear and strong than if only a single question type were used for the same problematic. We continue to assess and push our quiz concept to make it more effective and engaging. And I'd welcome any thoughts you and other members might have. The best place to share these is in the suggestion box in the Craft Anglais community. Thanks again for your question. That does it for this episode of The Cafeteria. Don't miss our very special season finale, where we take you to the United States for the holidays à l'américaine. In addition to an introduction to the frankly bizarre world of U.S. holiday cuisine, we'll share what you should and shouldn't say when wishing Anglophone colleagues bonne fête de fin d'année. We'll also be working on an important pronunciation point involving T's that magically become D's. And as always, we'll take questions from you, the Craft Anglais community. If there's something you'd like to say about today's episode or a question you'd like to ask, hop over to the community and tell us what's on your mind. And if you have an idea for a future lesson, I'm all ears, as we say. Until next time, have a great week. Couchez Jean-Pierre. Pas bouger. <laughs>